Yitro joined the Jewish people once he heard the report. Then Yitro recommended adding judges to the courts. The Jews witnessed the Harsinai revelation and were called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this week's Parsha is Yitro, and perhaps it's the most important Parsha in the entire Torah, uh, because finally the Jews get to Harsinai, and they receive the uh, Ten Commandments. So you could make the argument that it's the most important Parsha in the Torah, and yet it's named after this guy, uh, Yitro. And so what is it exactly about Yitro that makes him such a prestigious person to be worthy uh, to have the schus of having this this incredibly important Parsha named after him. So I heard a very nice idea from Rabbi, from, uh, Rabbi Wolby that he talks about what is it that, that Yitro did to deserve such an honor. And Rabbi Wolby says um, that what makes Yitro the so, so what makes Yitro worthy is that he is the spitting image of um, what what a Jew should be, how how a Jew should model his or her life, and Yitro says what Yitro does is he's constantly someone that is changing. In fact, he has seven different names in the Torah, and when you're given a name. In the Torah, it signifies a certain part of your identity, who you are. So the reason that Yitro had to have seven names is because he changed seven different times. And every single time that his personality changed, he was deserving of an entirely new name. And, you know, Yitro had a couple things that were very unique about him. First, he was a mover and a shaker. Wherever he was, he he always was looking at ways to improve himself and his surroundings. For example, the Parsha starts out by saying that he was the, a, a Kohen of Midian. He was, he was a high priest of Midian. And that's pretty shocking because Midian was just the latest place that he'd been. In fact, um, the Midrash talks about how Yitro worshipped every single avodazara, every single idol that there was uh, invented in history, that he was, Yitro was someone that, that had worshipped every idol and finally uh, realized that, that, that the Jews had the, um, had the right model. But he was someone that regardless of where he was, he was always looking at ways to improve. So when he was in Midian, he rose all the way to the level of Kohen. He rose all the way to the level of becoming a high priest when he was at Midian. And then, furthermore, um, we learn that he was also an advisor to Pharaoh, which, so that was a totally separate thing. He, he, he was the Kohen of Midian. He was an advisor to Pharaoh. That was in a, a separate life. That was in another name. And we see when this Parsha starts out, immediately he um, implements this, uh, this, this new decree where the Jews now will have levels of, um, of courts. They'll have lower courts. They'll have middle courts. They'll have upper courts. And that's something that Yitro implemented almost immediately when he was um, when he became a part of the Jewish people. So I think we can learn a lot from Yitro. First of all, we have to be willing um, to make improvements in our lives. Whenever 
you know, what, whatever situation Yitro found himself in, he was looking to become the Kohen. He was looking to become the leader of the people. He was looking to become the advisor to Pharaoh. He was always looking to um, make, you know, he, he, he implemented new courts uh, for the Jews. He was always looking at ways to improve his community. And that was a, an, an essence of who Yitro was. Yet, and this is just as important, Yitro was not a victim of the sunk cost fallacy. You know, the sunk cost fallacy is something where you say, well, you know, I've invested so much time and effort into this one particular field that um, that I'm not going to leave it. But that's a fallacy because it could be that the alternative, even starting from, from scratch, is better than sticking with something that you've spent a lot of time and, and effort and uh, resources towards because that other alternative um, is going to be better for you. And that's a very hard thing, you know, that it's called a fallacy because it's something that a lot of us fall prey to, that we spend and invest so much time in one thing, and it turns out that there's an alternative that comes along that's better, and it means that we'll have to totally dump what we, what we spent so much time and effort in but it's worth that it's worth dumping it and Yitro was was the essence of someone that was willing to leave behind um what he saw to be a better opportunity a, a you know a greener pasture so to speak so that's who Yitro was he even though that the torah describes him as the kohen of midian again the the ruler the um the high priest of midian that did not stop him from joining the Jewish people because he realized that the Jews even had something better than Midian did, even though he was living a pretty comfortable life being a Kohen uh, in Midian. So, you know, I think that um, that we can learn two things from Yitro. One, again, as I said, where, whatever situation he found himself in, he was a mover and a shaker. He was the Kohen of Midian. He was the advisor to Pharaoh. He was implementing um, a new court system for the Jewish people. But secondly, he was willing to transition if regardless of how high he got in a certain, um, you know, in a certain uh, field, he was never too comfortable. He was always willing to start back at square one, regardless of the fact that he was the Kohen of Midian, regardless of the fact that he was advisor to Pharaoh, he was willing to dump all of it and join the Jewish people. And and that that gave him the close of having seven different names in the Parsha. And, um, and, you know, we should all be like Yitro, that we should all be willing to adapt and change. And regardless of how much time and effort we spend on one activity, if another better, better thing comes along, we should jump aboard. Um, beautiful message there. And perhaps that's why we, you know, this Parsha deserves the name of Yitro, because that's who we should be. If we live our lives by that philosophy, um, the Torah will come easy to us. Now, moving on in um, this week's Parsha into some of the things that Yitro actually did here. So additionally, Yitro's name comes from Yoter, to add. And perhaps that's because, as I mentioned, he was always adding. He was all, whatever situation he found himself in, he was always adding to his community. He was always um, a benefactor, you know, to, to his community. And um, whatever, wherever Yitro was, you could count on the fact that he was adding. He was Yoter to, to, you know, his community and those around him. Now, um, Yitro 
it says that Yitro rejoiced over all the good that Hashem had done for Israel in taking them out of Egypt. And the word the Torah uses for rejoiced is chadudim. So this could mean a lot of different things. Chadudim could mean, um, it means kind of a goosebump, prickles. Uh, and perhaps the goosebump, the most simple understanding is by goosebump is, is that he had, he was so excited that he, re, he was rejoicing. Um, and he was rejoicing about uh, all the good that Hashem had done for Israel in destroying Egypt. But another way to interpret that is um, like prickles of unease. He was, he was feeling uneasy. Why was he feeling uneasy? Because I mentioned before, he was the advisor to Pharaoh. And certainly, even though he realized that the Jewish people were, um, were you know, the correct choice, they, they were a better nation than the nation of Egypt. Um, nonetheless, because he was an advisor to Pharaoh, it still hurt him to see that Pharaoh and all of Egypt was destroyed. And, you know, I think that this is an important lesson that we can have these kind of contradictory things when we're making changes in our lives. On one hand, we can certainly be grateful and we can rejoice and we can have goosebumps even of excitement. But on the other hand, there certainly are uneasy moments. And sometimes those two things come together, especially when changes are are being made. And when, you know, two worlds are being, um, are coming in conflict with one another. We have to be um, we have to be cognizant of the fact that on one hand, you know, certainly we're rejoicing because we think we made the right decision to change. But on the other hand, those prickles of unease shouldn't be uh, disregarded. Those are both real feelings: the rejoicing and the prickles of unease. Another way you could understand chadudim is dealing with the word um, like echad uh, or achdus, togetherness, and perhaps. Maybe that's why Yitro was able to rejoice over all the good that Hashem had done for Israel and taking them out of Egypt is because he felt like he was a part of the Jewish people. That's how welcoming the Jews were to this newcomer is they were they were so tremendously welcoming. It says that uh, Moshe and Aaron and Aaron's sons and, and in fact the entire nation came out to greet Yitro. And perhaps um, it's because of that that tremendous warm welcome that he felt like he was together with the Jewish people. He felt a sense of achdos. He felt a sense of togetherness with the Jews. And perhaps it's because of that togetherness that he was, even though he was an outsider, he felt like he felt just so welcomed um, that, that he was willing to rejoice over, um, over what Hashem had, had done for Israel. Now, moving on in this week's Parsha, it says that, um, Yitro had a feast, Lifne Hashem, before Hashem. And what's a little bit surprising about this is that really any other, you know, religions would say that, you know, eating and, um, and being before God are two totally separate things. Yet in the Torah is very clear that, um, in fact, you know, almost every single holiday is, is associated with food. Um, you know, and, and I think the reason for that is because the Jews believe that you can elevate, you know, the mundane, that even a feast, even just eating bread, there's um, a tremendous amount of potential in the most mundane things of just eating. And that's why this feast was Lifnei Hashem, was before Hashem, even a feast. 
um, and maybe even especially a feast, uh, especially in the realm of physical things, that you can elevate that to be Lifnei Hashem. Moving on in this week's Parsha. Um, so this is when uh, Yitro gives his advice to Moshe, and he says that, uh, so it talks about the fact that the courts, they all went through Moshe, and Yitro introduced uh, the lower courts. And in fact, so Rashi says that the Jews are criticized for not holding on to their leader, Moshe, because ultimately what happened when these lower courts were created is that only the very, very toughest cases went to um, went to Moshe, and everybody else had a lot less face time with Moshe. So even though it made sense from a um, efficiency standpoint, because not everyone was able to see this great leader, Moshe, eventually the Jews were criticized for allowing um, the lower courts to be created because regardless of logic, regardless of logically, the Jews, you know, ultimately were, were it was a better legal system to have multiple courts, but that FaceTime with Moshe Rabbeinu, that was that was worth defying logic for. And, you know, maybe Joshua, who will take over after Moshe passes, Joshua is, you know, a key example of someone that he never abandoned Moshe. He realized that Moshe was such a tremendous leader that almost whenever we see Joshua, he's always around Moshe. He's always learning from him. And, you know, even though it might have been inconvenient for Joshua at many points in time, to always stick by Moshe's side, perhaps it's because of that stick-to-itiveness. Perhaps it's because of that um, that desire to be near Moshe, the, the, the greatest person to ever live. It's that desire to be near him that he merited to be the, lead, the next leader of the Jewish people. Moving on in this week's Parsha. Um, so um, Yisro says... Or, or sorry, Moshe is describing um, what the Jews do when they come uh, to settle disputes. And Moshe says that people come to seek God, and when they have a matter, when they have a davar, um, I judge them between man and his fellow. So I heard a beautiful um, interpretation on this, that when you come to seek, people came to seek God, they actively came to seek God, what does that mean? That they came in times when there were godly questions, times ben adam ben adam hamakom questions between um, a person and God, questions of kashrut, for example. Um, you know, making sure maybe I cooked a little bit of you know uh, I I ate meat in a in a milk bowl. That's a question you would quickly go to Moshe for. You would come to Moshe for, but when there was a matter. It wasn't when there was a matter and Moshe had to judge between man and his fellow man. Then, in that case, the Jews, they weren't so quick to go and ask Moshe a question until already there was a matter created. And, you know, I think this is a tendency we see even today that we're quick to seek advice about things like kashrut um, when there's a question about, you know, us and our relationship with God. But but we're very, very slow to ask a question when it comes to us and our relationship with another person. And that's why perhaps um, people came, actively came to seek God. Yet when you have a matter, um, 
yet when it when there's an issue between you and another person you wait until it becomes an actual issue you're not preemptively um you're not preemptively getting rid of that issue and you know maybe if we took a more proactive approach on making sure that all of our interactions between us and other people are in line with you know torah values we would be better off we wouldn't have those davars we wouldn't have those matters coming up to need disputing in the first place now moving on in this week's parsha so um yitro gives a description about what um what good judges would look like so yitro says that really two contradictory descriptions yitro says that they should be unsheikhail men of accomplishment and that they should also hate money so which one is it? So so Rashi explains that uh, men of accomplishment means that they have a lot of money. But on the other hand, we another description that you need in a good judge is that they hate money. So how do you resolve this this uh, dispute? So I actually think that really it's the same reason uh, for both. So the reason that um, you want people you want a, a men of accomplishment is because they're someone that already has money and they're not looking, they won't be persuaded easily by a bribe because they already have money and they're not going to be willing to compromise uh, to get a little bit more of it. So another reason, so, and then the same reason is true for hating money. It's not that you hate any money because if you hated any money, then you wouldn't be someone of accomplishment, but rather it's that you hate money that's not yours. You hate dishonest money. And if you hate dishonest money, then you're not going to be willing to take a bribe. So basically that same concept of if you're not willing to take a bribe because you hate money, then you're also, if you're wealthy enough, you're also not going to be willing to take a bribe. Now moving on in this week's Parsha. Um, <clears throat> so there's an interesting, uh, very, very minor distinction, but an important distinction between how how Yitro advises Moshe and how Moshe ends up um, actually implementing the plan. So Yitro says that the major cases should go to you and the minor cases should go to the lower courts. But when Moshe actually implemented this plan, he said the difficult cases will come to me and the minor cases and the easy cases will go to the lower courts. So Moshe was saying that um, it doesn't matter whether it's a major or a minor case. It doesn't matter whether the press is going to be covering it or not. It doesn't matter, you know, whether it's going to be on TV the next day or it's not going to be on TV the next day. What really matters is whether it's a difficult case. If it's a difficult case, then take it to Moshe. And that was the difference between Yisro thought that what really mattered was whether it was a major case, whether it was going to bring, you know, all the... Uh, all the the news reporters, but but Moshe realized no, that, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing for me to settle is the difficult cases, major or minor. That that doesn't matter so much. Moving on, um, so the w- once this plan for for new courts is implemented, um, it says that the that the Jews were judged, or sorry, that that they judged the people at all times. So. You know, I think that this is pretty interesting. It's something that, you know, I've learned in law school is that really the point of the legal system and um, the same is true of the this ancient, you know, Jewish legal system 
the point of the legal system is not so much to get to the truth, but rather to settle disputes quickly and fairly. So less important than making sure that you have exactly the truth is just making sure that you get get a, a decision quickly. And, you know, I think that this is a great example because Moshe, obviously, if you brought your dispute to Moshe, he had a direct connection with God. He, he could understand exactly what God wanted to see and would bring down an absolutely perfect custom-made um, decision for you and the person that you were that you had the dispute with. Yet, it's better to forego that absolute precise uh, decision in favor of being judged all the time, in favor of being able to have access to justice at all times. And having that access, even if it comes a little bit at the cost of having a perfect ruling, is well worth it. The The quickness, it's a, it's a good trade-off to trade having quick, and efficient judgments rather than having absolutely perfect judgments, but having them take a very, very long time. And, you know, certainly all of our disputes should be settled quickly and uh, we'll be a lot better off for it. Now, moving on in this week's Parsha, um, the Jews finally get to Mount Sinai, or Sinai. And it says that the Torah says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, that uh, the Jews encamped there. And Rashi points out that Vayichan is a verb in the singular. And Rashi says that, you know, even though the, the entire people were at the mountain, and there's a famous Rashi here, Rashi says that, um, that the entire nation was like a single person with one heart. And what's fascinating about this is that why wasn't this mentioned earlier? You know, the Jews were all together by... Um, in the ten plagues, the Jews were all together when they were um, by the splitting of the sea. The Jews were all together in, um, when, you know, when the, when they didn't have water and when they didn't have food and when they were in the war with Amalek. So why is it just now telling us that they were all together? And I heard a beautiful interpretation here because all those other times, you know, during the ten plagues, during the splitting of the sea, during the fights, during the no food. All those times were times of hardship. And in times of hardship, it's easy to be together. But here, finally, no one was chasing them. There was no one coming after them. They had all their needs and, and desires met, yet they were still together. And that's why it's worth mentioning. There's no chiddish. There's no learning. Uh, there, there's nothing new to learn from the fact that a group that's being oppressed sticks together. But there is an amazing, tremendous insight that a group that's not oppressed, a group in good times, that they're still able to be together. Now, moving on in this week's Parsha, the Jews are called from, so Hashem um, refers to the Jews as Mamlechet Kohanim Vogoi Kadosh, which means uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, these two things seem to be at odds with each other. A kingdom of priests, that sounds pretty good. Um, you know, uh, why wouldn't you want to be a priest? But on the other hand, a holy nation, what, what does it mean to be holy? It means someone, it, it means to separate yourself. And, you know, I think that really the, the, um, the Jewish, uh, philosophy is the fact that, you know, certainly you'll get the schar, you'll get the reward for being, um, a kingdom of priests. That's a pretty nice deal. But, you know, 
Um, on the other hand, it comes with a great responsibility that you have to be a goikadosh. You have to be someone that separates yourself, and that's sometimes no fun. Um, so, you know, these two things are, are together, that in order to be a mamlachet kohanim, in order to be a kingdom of priests, which is a, a pretty sweet deal, you have to also be a goikadosh. You have to also be a group that separates themselves, which comes at some costs. Um, and, you know, those two things, while they might seem one is good, one is one is maybe bad, they're both necessary together, that you have to be able to separate yourself and only via separating yourself and making yourself holy, only then can you be a goikadosh. Or sorry, only then can you be a mamlachet kohanim. Only then can you be a kingdom of priests. Moving on in this week's Parsha, so the Orachayim uh, has a nice message that when um, so that God tells Moshe to warn the Jews two different times to not be the, near the mountain unless um, because if they if they get too close to the mountain they're going to die. So Moshe tells the Jews one time before um, the Ten Commandments, and then he tells them immediately right before the Ten Commandments start again a second time. So why does and Moshe himself is wondering, why exactly do I have to tell the Jews twice to stay off this mountain? And um, so the Ora Chaim says something beautiful here, that when you are, um, you know, th- that you might think that the, the point of Judaism is just to get closer to God at all costs. And this would have been your opportunity. You know, certainly during the Ten Commandments, if you ran up to the mountain when it was on fire and rumbling and, and all those things, certainly when you ran up to the mountain, um, that would be a time to be tremendously close to God. But if it comes at the costs of being, you know, uh, killed and, and being put out of this world, then it's not worth it. So, um, you know, this is interesting that, that even though um, in this case, the Jews had the ultimate chance to be close to God, that was almost, it came, that was secondary to the fact of, um, of having the honor of living in this world. So it's, it's better that we live in this world than we die and, you know, then we'd be close to God, but it comes at the cost of being killed. Um, so moving on in this week's Parsha, the first of the Ten Commandments, um, is I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of Egypt. So the Kuzari asked an interesting question. Why is God's why is it saying who took the God who took you out of Egypt? The Kuzari asks, it should have said, um, it should have said, I'm the God that that uh, that created the world. You know, if you're looking at God's resume up until this point, you know, I think you would say creating the world is a lot bigger deal than bringing the Jews out of Egypt. You know, he created. He created the sea. Who cares if he split it or not? Creating it is a lot bigger deal than that. So I think it's a nice lesson to learn, though, that God is saying, you know, when you're when you're talking with someone, you should be relevant with them. And um, the the people, while they were living on the earth, they hadn't experienced the creation, even though the creation was a bigger deal than the Jews being taken out of Egypt. Because they hadn't experienced that, but they had experienced actually being taken out of Egypt, that was more dear to their hearts than um, than the creation of the world. And, you know, I think this is important. Basically, God knew his audience. God knew his audience that uh, that 
that taking you out of Egypt is even a bigger deal than creating the world. Perhaps another answer is because um, it's important that we always look back at who we once were. And, you know, God is saying, look, you guys were once slaves. You guys were, I'm the one that took you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. I'm the one that took you out of slavery. And you, you people, the same, you slaves that were in Egypt, now all of a sudden, you know, um, now all of a sudden you're mamlachet kohanim v'goy kadosh. Now all of a sudden you're, you know, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it's something that we shouldn't take for granted. We shouldn't take for granted um, what we have today. We shouldn't just assume that we've always we've you know always been mamlachet kohanim v'goy kadosh. We shouldn't assume we've always been um, a kingdom of priests. In fact, we were slaves. And when we realize that we were once slaves, we'll realize just how appreciative we have to be um, to realize where we are today. You know, and any time that we reach a, a milestone, an accomplishment, we should we should celebrate it, um, and we should honor it, and um, we should be thankful because ultimately, when we look back and we reflect at where we came from, there's no alternative but to be thankful for where we are today. Uh, now, moving on in this week's parsha to some of the other Ten Commandments, um, so we have the commandment of keeping Shabbat. And the Torah says that um, in six days you will accomplish all your work. So how exactly is this possible that you're going to accomplish all your work in six days and rest on the seventh? And I think that this is a fundamental principle about Shabbat, is that basically during six days we're planting seeds. You know, when you're in a farming cycle, you plant the seeds... And then there's a certain downtime from planting the seeds to actually reaping your crop. And, um, well, you know, you're doing some things, maybe weeding, maybe watering, etc. Those aren't, you know, the, that, that's not nearly as much work as actually planting the seeds. Um, and I think that that's really what Shabbat is. is. Shabbat is that time to weed. Um, the Shabbat is that time to water. Obviously, don't do the, the, you know, those things are not allowed on Shabbat, those exact things. But uh, to my point, basically, when you're planting your seeds during the week, that you should view that as all your work being done. And then all those little things of weeding, of watering, all those little things, that's what Shabbat is for. That's also a certain amount of work um, replenishing, you know, what you have, replenishing um, your your mind, your body, uh, for for the next six days of week, so for for the next six days of work, um, and ultimately, you know, when, why is it? How is it that you can accomplish all your work in six days? It's because um, you feel so confident that you lead the correct groundwork in those six days that sh- when Shabbat comes, you're totally rested. And, you know, when when Sunday comes after Shabbat, then you're already ready to start on your work again uh, because you feel like what you've done in those last six days have already been completed and you're almost starting an entirely new cycle of work uh, in the next week. Moving on to this week's Parsha. Um, so the Torah says that honoring your parents will lengthen your life. So why is this exactly? And uh, I think I have, you know, a bit of a, a novel insight here. Perhaps it's because um, it's not necessarily that 
you yourself honoring your parents will lengthen your life, but rather it's that when your own children honor you, your life will be lengthened. You know, for example, when you're an elderly person and your children are there to help you, your life is going to be lengthened because your children are there to help you. And so then how how does honoring your parents end up actually lengthening your life? It's because monkey see, monkey do. You know, if your children see you helping your parents, it's not going to be, you know, so many years later that eventually that role is going to be flipped and your children are going to be the ones helping you. So ultimately, it's not that honoring your parents will directly lead to lengthening your life, but rather honoring your parents will, you'll be a role model for your children about how you should live. And then when your children are there to honor you, ultimately you'll get that reward um, for being able to live a longer life because your children are there to help you, you know, in your old age. But like I said, monkey see, monkey do. And because of that philosophy, if you, if, if you are a role model, you know, for your children, ultimately, um, though your children will, will be there for you. Now, moving on to the last point in this week's Parsha, um, it's that it, the, the Torah says, um, there was, or, or Rashi says that, or, sorry, uh, Moshe says that, uh, that the awe of God will be on your faces and so that you will not sin. You know, and I think that this is a very important lesson because um, a lot of the times we think about, you know, how can how is it that we can improve ourselves? How is it that we can make changes? How is it that we can avoid sin? And a lot of us, you know, maybe think we have to do this logically. We have to think, you know, sin is just making making mistakes, um, doing a virus, doing, doing things that we shouldn't do. Um, logically, that's not a smart idea, so we shouldn't do it. And that's how we're going to avoid not doing sin. But at the end of the day, that really doesn't make that it, it doesn't work in practice all that well. What works in practice is having an awe of God upon your faces. Is basically having an awe of God on your face is a certain emotion. So my point is, the only way to really avoid averos, so the only way to really avoid sin, is by counteracting that with a countervailing emotion. No amount of logic is ever going to be able to totally dispel um, a person from doing sin. But rather, having emotion on the opposite end, having an awe of God on your face, that's a, that's a very strong emotion on a, the positive side. And when you have that, that emotion, then you'll be able to fight any other countervailing negative emotion. So, you know, you have the Yitzhar Hara and the Yitzhar Tov. Perhaps the Yitzhar Tov is not necessarily a totally logical um, device, but rather the Yitzhar Tov is an emotional device. The Yitzhar Tov is having the awe of God on your face. Um, it's, the, it's the feeling that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel that uh, in order to counteract um, your bad habits that you need to use logic, but rather you should use a countervailing an equal, an equal and opposite emotion. And um, only through those emotions will you actually be able to fight off sin, not through logic. Emotions, you know, fight fire with fire. Emotions are a lot better um, to fight off, you know, urges than fighting, fighting urges, you know, cer- certain, uh, um, 
sinful and, and negative, uh, negative, you know, Yitzhahara moments with logic. We're better off fighting with, with emotion. We're better off fighting with an awe of God on our face. Now, just to recap a few of the major points that I talked about, um, you know, the fact that we should all be like Yisro, the fact that Yisro was willing to change seven times, the fact that um, Yisro was not a victim of the sunk cost fallacy, regardless of how much time and effort he spent in a previous endeavor, if something else better came along, he was willing to drop all of it and totally switch, switch course. And um, secondly, wherever he found himself, he was always making the most of it. You know, he was always, he was becoming, he became the Kohen of Midian. He became the advisor to Pharaoh. He was implementing a new court system for the Jews. He was always looking to improve himself, improve his communities. Perhaps that's why his name is Yisro. Perhaps that's why his name comes from Yoter, to, to add. He was always adding to himself and, and to his community. And, and, and that's the perfect role model for how we should accept the Torah. We should accept the Torah in a way that we're always willing to change ourselves. We're always willing to adapt. We're always willing to make the most of our situation. And regardless of where we find ourselves, look at you know um, at new and exciting ways to improve ourselves and those around us. Then I talked about um, the fact that there was... Um, the difference of implementation between what Yisro said, he said, make sure that the major matters come to you and the minor matters go to the lower courts. Moshe said, the difficult matters are going to come to me. I don't matter. You know, it, Moshe said, it doesn't really, um, I don't care about the press. I don't care about how major a certain case is. I'd rather have take the difficult cases. Um, and then I talked about um, the fact that Mamlechet Kohanim Vagoy Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, those kind of two counteracting, two two seemingly contradictory things that the kingdom of priests sounds pretty good. Mamlechet Kohanim sounds pretty good, but the Vagoy Kadosh, separating yourself, being a holy nation, that sounds tough, difficult. And exactly, that's the point, that you have to have both of those things together in order to become a holy nation so in order to become a kingdom of priests, you have to first become a holy nation. You have to first um, separate yourself and be willing to, to make certain sacrifices. Um, I also talked about the fact that when God says, I took you out of Egypt, we should remember the fact we should be always looking back at who we once were. We were all once slaves in Egypt. And look at how far we've come. And that's something that we shouldn't take for granted. That's something we should be tremendously thankful for. Um, I also talked about, and, and lastly, I talked about honoring your parents. Why is that 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 will lengthen your life? It's because um, it's not. It's because when your children see you honoring your parents, ultimately they will come to honor you in your old age. So monkey see, monkey do. And because of that, when you're honoring your parents. Um, your children likewise will be there to honor you when when you need them. And with that, uh, we should all be like Yisrael. We should all be willing to change our names seven times if necessary. And um, with Yisrael in mind, that's how ultimately we should accept the Torah, uh, with a growth mindset, with a mindset that we'll always be able 
to make changes and adjust. And there's no, you know, forget the sunk cost fallacy that, you know, if we spend a lot of time and effort on one thing, we should be willing to switch, uh, switch gears if and a better opportunity arises. And when that better opportunity arises, we should make the most of it. Uh, so with that, l'chaim l'chaim.